Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 268. Today's big Bible question, what does the Bible really teach about giving and offerings? Hashtag no charlatans. So hello, friends. Happy Lord's Day to you. I am rejoicing that this Sunday our air quality in Central California appears to be so much better, and it looks like we're going to be able to meet in person for worship. It's going to be outside in our church parking lot where we've been meeting because we can't meet inside yet, but it's still awesome. We've had to take two weeks off of meeting for the air quality issue, and I'm just eager to be back together with our people. If you've uh, got a Facebook account and you want to join with us, we will be broadcasting live at 11 a.m. on uh, VBC Salinas. That's our Facebook page, VBC Salinas, Victor Bravo Charlie, S-A-L-I-N-A-S. Please come join us. Now, when I was a kid, my family would almost always have lunch together on Sundays after church. Now, we didn't do a ton of family meals together, uh, but the Sunday lunch meal was extremely regular and the norm, and the conversation of my parents usually revolved around church on that Sunday lunchtime. I don't recall them ever criticizing the sermon or things like that, with one exception. It seems like there was a bit of extra struggle when the pastor would talk about money, giving, and offerings. Now, I actually think they gave very generously. It just seemed like those messages in particular had a tendency to raise some hackles. Now, the passage of years since then has robbed my memory of the details of those conversations. I just remember that when the sermon was on giving and offerings, that there might have been some negative things to say, or maybe just less than positive things to say. Now, for the record, we actually went to some solid and biblical churches at this time, the very opposite of prosperity gospel churches that try to manipulate people into giving with, you know, false promises and lies, etc. I can only imagine what those lunch table conversations would have been like had we regularly attended one of those uh, religious organizations. I've heard similar complaints from church members over the years in various churches that I attended while in college and while serving in various church ministry roles. I can also remember my dad, who had several ministers and pastors as good friends, mentioning that if he ever went to lunch with a minister or a pastor, the other person would seem to expect him to pay for their meal, even to the point of awkwardness sometimes. Now, growing up, I didn't expect to be a pastor or minister, but once I became that, I guess I made a couple of very strong but subconscious choices. Number one, I decided to never be a mooch when eating lunch with other people, because, I don't know, it's honestly kind of silly for a pastor or minister to expect others to pay for their food. And number two, even more subconsciously, I decided to avoid talking about giving and offerings during the sermon time, almost to an extreme amount. Now, maybe my motivations here were partly good. For one, I'd seen a good bit of the dangers of the health and wealth and prosperity movement and other churches and ministries that try just so hard to separate believers from their money by false promises and all that kind of stuff, and I won't know part of that and consider such behavior a horrible stain on the body of Christ. Like, it just infuriates me to see uh, pastors on TV just trying so hard to get people to send them an offering and promising these ridiculous things in return for that. That's just, I just don't see that kind of behavior in the Bible. But I also don't want to make people uncomfortable about money as a pastor. 
you know, sort of in the back of my mind, imagining them going home to lunch with their families after hearing me teach about giving and, you know, fussing about the message at the lunch table. That sounds pretty awful. So for years as a senior pastor, I just sort of avoided the subject unless for some reason, maybe we were going through a book and I had to cover it or something like that. I was somehow forced to teach on it by one circumstance or another. At some point, several years into being a senior pastor, a fellow minister and pastor and a dear friend of mine challenged me with the words of today's focus passage, 2 Corinthians 9. And he suggested that my lack of teaching about giving, though maybe noble in some ways, in seeking to avoid manipulation and guilt, was more importantly robbing Christians of God's promised blessings to those who give. And as I read 2 Corinthians over and over, I came to the realization that he was absolutely right. Now, we learn in today's passage that giving is not a burden, but it will be an activity that brings the blessing of God. Now, I still don't want to guilt or manipulate people, but I also don't want them to miss a blessing of God, so... I do try to teach on giving from time to time, even though it's probably still rare. Well, let's read our focus passage today and see if you can see some of the blessings of giving in there, as well as the warnings that Paul gives uh, against giving by compulsion or guilt or manipulation. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty and so that you would be ready just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, that's a wonderful, challenging, and encouraging chapter. I personally think John Piper Piper has rock-solid theology on giving and offerings. So we're going to close out with a selection from a message he preached on this chapter a few years ago. Piper says this, If God approves so heartily of joyful generosity, we may be sure he will bless it. 
There are thousands of stories of wealthy people who have given far and away above the tenth of their income and have found themselves unable to outgive God. But verse 6 does not mean that if you give to God, you will get rich. The Macedonians are the model in these chapters, and it was their poverty that overflowed in a wealth of liberality. Just what it does mean to reap bountifully is shown in verses 8 through 11. But first, Paul says in verse 7, each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This reiterates the point of chapter 8, cheerfulness, not compulsion. The statement, God loves a cheerful giver, is shocking if we think that God loves all men in the same way, but he doesn't. He loves all in that he gives life to all and reveals himself in nature to all and in Christ made atonement for sin that can be offered to all. But those who love him and are called according to his purpose and who cheerfully give because Christ has made them rich in love and joy, these God loves uniquely in that he works everything together for their great good and turns all their generosity back upon their head with limitless blessing not so that they may build bigger barns or houses or have better cars or whatever, but so that they do more generous good works. Verses 8 through 11 explains, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for great generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In these four verses, Paul explains in what sense those who give bountifully will reap bountifully. They will reap bountifully in that God will never allow them to give so much that they can't give more. Or to put it positively, the more you give, the more God will enable you to give. This truth is stated three times. First in verse 8, so that you may always be able to provide for every good work. Second in verse 10, God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. That is, he will enable you to put out even more for righteousness sake. Third in verse 11, you will be enriched for generosity. The truth is plain. It's a promise. You may have much, you may have little. The promise remains. The more you give for the sake of others, the more you will be enabled by God to give. Let me stress that Paul is not promising to make generous Christians wealthy. He is promising to make generous Christians capable of any even greater generosity. There is a mentality that says with the increase of income, there should also be an increase in the material signs of wealth. And in the last few years, these signs usually included a larger house further out in the suburbs, a larger car usually one of the luxury kind of cars, a yearly switch in wardrobe to keep current, an application for the gold credit card, an array of expensive entertainment and recreational items, and so on. This mentality says buy it because you can afford it and should look like you can. But that's the opposite of the mentality of this text. I believe this text implies that God does not oppose our income climbing from 10000 to 50000 to 100000 What he opposes is when his beneficence to us is bottled up in excessive worldly possessions and investments. If God increases our income, he is not putting his stamp of approval on a life of luxury. He is commissioning us to the exhilarating and joyful mission of tremendous and creative generosity. Make as much as you want and give as much as you can. The last phrase of verse 11 as well as verses 12 through 15 describes the great outcome of when God's people overflow in generosity. 
This will produce thanksgiving to God for the rendering of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. Under the test of this service, you will glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The great outcome of Christian generosity is that the needs of the saints are met. The gospel of Christ is acknowledged and spread. Many thanks rise to the Heavenly Father, and he is glorified in the world. Amen. Well, in addition to 2 Corinthians 9, which we just read, our other Bible passages for today's readings are 2 Samuel 16, Psalms 70 and 71, and Ezekiel 23. Let's read them now, and by the way, PG-13, maybe beyond that, warning for that Ezekiel passage. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. When David had gone a little beyond the summit, Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddle donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a clay jar of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why do you have these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, the bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine is for those to drink who become exhausted in the wilderness. Where is your master's grandson? The king asked. Why, he's staying in Jerusalem, Ziba replied to the king, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. The king said to Ziba, All that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I bow before you, Ziba said. May I find favor with you, my lord the king. When King David got to Behurim, a man belonging to the family of the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shammai, son of Gera, and he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David and all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king, and the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. The king replied, Sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this way because the Lord told him, Curse David. Therefore, who can say, Why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Look, my own son, my own flesh and blood, intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shammai's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shammai was going along the ridge of the hill opposite to him. As Shammai went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived exhausted, so they rested there. Now Absalom and all the Israelites came to Jerusalem. Ahithophel was also with him. When David's friend Hushai the archite came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Is this your loyalty to your friend? Absalom said to Hushai. Why didn't you go with your friend? Not at all, Hushai answered Absalom. I am on the side of the one that the Lord, this people, and all the men of Israel have chosen. I will stay with him. Furthermore, whom will I serve if not his son? 
As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give me your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you have become repulsive to your father, everyone with you will be encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. Psalm chapter 70 verse 1. God, hurry to rescue me. Lord, hurry to help me. Let those who seek to kill me be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wish me harm be turned back and humiliated. Let those who say, aha, aha, retreat because of their shame. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, God is great. I am oppressed and needy. Hurry to me, God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Psalm 71. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. In your justice, rescue and deliver me. Listen closely to me and save me. Be a rock of refuge for me where I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the power of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and oppressive. For you are my hope, Lord God, my confidence from my youth. I have leaned on you from birth. You took me from my mother's womb. My praise is always about you. I am like a miraculous sign to many, and you are my strong refuge. My mouth is full of praise and honor to you all day long. Don't discard me in my old age. As my strength fails, do not abandon me. For my enemies talk about me, and those who spy on me plot together, saying God has abandoned him. Chase and catch him, for there is no one to rescue him. God, do not be far from me. My God, hurry to help me. May my adversaries be disgraced and destroyed. May those who intend to harm me be covered with disgrace and humiliation. But I will hope continually and will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell about your righteousness and your salvation all day long. Though I cannot sum them up, I come because of the mighty acts of the Lord God. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still proclaim your wondrous works, even while I am old and gray. God, do not abandon me while I proclaim your power to another generation, your strength to all who are to come. Your righteousness reaches the heights, God. You have done great things. God, who is like you? You caused me to experience many troubles and misfortunes, but you will revive me again. You will bring me up again, even from the depths of the earth. You will increase my honor and comfort me once again. Therefore, I will praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing to you with a lyre. Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you because you have redeemed me. Therefore, my tongue will proclaim your righteousness all day long. For those who intend to harm me will be disgraced and confounded. Ezekiel 23 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, there were two women, daughters of the same mother, who acted like prostitutes in Egypt, behaving promiscuously in their youth. Their names were, their breasts were fondled there and their virgin nipples caressed. The older one was named Ahola, and her sister was Oholibah. They became mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola represents Samaria, and Aholabah represents Jerusalem. Ahola acted like a prostitute, even though she was mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors dressed in blue, 
governors and prefects, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on steeds. She offered her sexual favors to them. All of them were the elite of Assyria. She defiled herself with all of those she lusted after and with all their idols. She didn't give up her promiscuity that began in Egypt. When men slept with her in her youth, caressed her virgin nipples and poured out their lust on her, Therefore I handed her over to her lovers, the Assyrians she lusted for. They exposed her nakedness, seized her sons and daughters, and killed her with a sword. Since they executed judgment against her, she became notorious among women. Now her sister Aholibah saw this, but she was even more depraved in her lust than Ahola and made her promiscuous acts worse than those of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and prefects, warriors splendidly dressed, horsemen riding on steeds, all of them desirable young men, and I saw that she had defiled herself. Both of them had taken the same path, but she increased her promiscuity when she saw male figures carved on the wall, images of the Chaldeans engraved in bright red wearing belts on their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like officers a depiction of the Babylonians in Chaldea, their native land. At the sight of them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and defiled her with their lust. But after she was defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she flaunted her promiscuity and exposed her nakedness, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I turned away from her sister. Yet she multiplied her acts of promiscuity, remembering the days of her youth when she acted like a prostitute in the land of Egypt, and lusted after their lovers, whose sexual members were like those of donkeys and whose omission was like that of stallions. So you revisited the depravity of your youth when the Egyptians caressed your nipples to enjoy your youthful breasts. Therefore, Aholibah, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to incite your lovers against you, those you turned away from in disgust. I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, all of them, governors and prefects, officers and administrators, all of them riding on steeds. They will come against you with an assembly of peoples and with weapons, chariots, and wagons. They will set themselves against you on every side with large and small shields and helmets. I will delegate judgment to them, and they will judge you by their own standards. When I vent my jealous fury on you, they will deal with you in wrath. They will cut off your nose and ears, and the rest of you will fall by the sword. They will seize your sons and daughters, and the rest of you will be consumed by fire. They will strip off your clothes and take your beautiful jewelry. So I will put an end to your depravity and sexual immorality which began in the land of Egypt, And you will not look longingly at them or remember Egypt anymore. For this is what the Lord God says. I am going to hand you over to those you hate, to those you turned away from in disgust. They will treat you with hatred, take all you have worked for, and leave you stark naked, so that the shame of your debauchery will be exposed, both your depravity and promiscuity. These things will be done to you because you acted like a prostitute with the nations, defiling yourself with their idols. You have followed the path of your sister, so I will put her cup in your hand. This is what the Lord God says. You will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be an object of ridicule and scorn, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and grief, with a cup of devastation and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw its broken pieces and tear your breasts, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, 
You must bear the consequences of your indecency and promiscuity. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you pass judgment against Ahola and Aholibah? Then declare their detestable practices to them. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols, and the children they bore to me they have sacrificed in the fire as food for the idols. They also did this to me. They defiled my sanctuary on that same day and profaned my Sabbaths. On the same day, they slaughtered their children for their idols. They entered my sanctuary to profane it. Yes, that is what they did inside my house. In addition, they sent for men who came from far away when a messenger was dispatched to them. And look how they came. You bathed, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with jewelry for them. You sat on a luxurious couch with a table spread before it on which you had set my incense and oil. The sound of a carefree crowd was there. Drunkards from the desert were brought in along with the common men. They put bracelets on the women's hands and beautiful tiaras on their heads. Then I said concerning this woman worn out by adultery, will they now have illicit sex with her, even her? Yet they had sex with her as one does with a prostitute. This is how they had sex with Ahola and Aholibah, those depraved women. But righteous men will judge them the way adulteresses and those who shed blood are judged, for they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. This is what the Lord God says, summon an assembly against them and consign them to terror and plunder. The assembly will stone them and cut them down with their swords. They will kill their sons and daughters and burn their houses. So I will put an end to depravity in the land and all the women will be admonished not to imitate your depraved behavior. They will punish you for your depravity, and you will bear the consequences for your sins of idolatry. Then you will know that I am the Lord God. Have mercy. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Good day and Godspeed.